0: And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, a Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On October 10th of 2022, I decided to do a day road trip to Rocky Mountain House, Alberta, which is well known as the place where adventure began. Because it served as a launching point for many explorers. It's a small community located about two hours southwest of Edmonton. Today the area is rich in oil, agriculture, forestry and tourism which all play a big role due to its location at the crossroads of Highway 22 and Highway 11 and its location between Red Deer and the scenic Alberta Rockies region. The community founded in 1799 shares a strong connection to my favourite Canadian historical figure, David Thompson. He used the fort as a wintering home and a jumping off point on a surveying expeditions in the early 19th century. As I arrived at the tourist booth, I saw a large sculpture. Measuring about 10 feet high, it featured mountains, trees and a river carved into it with the words, Welcome to Rocky Mountain House emblazoned across the top. Coming out of it, there's a sculpted canoe navigated by a man in the front and two men in the back. The men look determined as they struggle to keep the canoe upright in the rapids while transporting a peaceful looking female passenger. The man in the front is David Thompson. He's considered the greatest surveyor and mapmaker in North American history. In his career, he traveled 90,000 kilometers and mapped 4.9 million square kilometers of the continent. The passenger seated with her hand, gently resting on the side of the canoe, looking calm with braided hair, appears to be of indigenous heritage. And while the others fight to keep the canoe steady, she stares straight ahead, right at visitors looking up at the sculpture. The woman's name is not lost to history. She was Thompson's companion, guide, and best friend. But she was also much more than that. She was his partner and wife. Although too often, she's been placed as a sidekick to David Thompson's story. Her name is Charlotte Small, and she is a woman who deserves to have her own story. And I'm going to do just that. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. A year ago, when I released the episode about David Thompson, there was ample information for me to dive into. I had books, newspaper articles, and more. In fact, he's a major subject of an episode of the CBC documentary series, Canada: A People's History, released over two decades ago. When I decided to dive into the story of his wife, Charlotte Small, there was far less information. Snippets here and there, often with contradictory information. Yet, she played an integral role in the story of Thompson. So, how can there be so little information about her? Frustrated, I scoured as much as I could to piece together her life and to show she's far more than simply Thompson's wife. She journeyed with him over mountain passes, across rivers, through the snow, rain, and heat, traveling 42,000 kilometers across what is now Western Canada, They married in 1801 in a marriage that bucked the trend of so-called country marriages of the time and remained married for 58 years in the longest confirmed marriage in pre-Confederation Canada. She raised his children, often as they travelled, while negotiating with Indigenous nations and keeping everyone fed during hard times with her hunting and gathering abilities. So, I hope to do her justice. Her story begins on September 1st, 1785, when she was born to Patrick Small, an investor or fur trader with the Northwest Company, and an unnamed Cree woman. As a woman of Cree and European descent, Charlotte was Métis, and part of a culture that would help shape Canadian history from the 19th century onwards. In 1788, when Charlotte was three, her father left for Montreal for a year, leaving his family behind. He returned in 1789 and remained with the family until 1791. Like so many other fur traders, as soon as his time in the wilderness ended, he abandoned his family and returned to his home in Scotland. This was the common practice for so-called country marriages, which weren't legal under law or God. At the time, a country marriage involved no formality or documents. These marriages were often done so a fur trader could get a trade advantage by marrying an indigenous woman. The woman helped her husband with translating and trading, and in exchange, her standing and security within the community was increased. For men, they also gained companionship in the wilderness. European wives typically didn't want to live in the middle of nowhere, in a cold and cramped fort with other people, so fur traders sought out indigenous women instead. Initially opposed to such arrangements, the Hudson's Bay Company and later the Northwest Company saw the benefit of ensuring their men didn't get lonely and return home before their work was done. For the most part, both the fur traders and the company saw the women in these arrangements as a means to an end, as disposable whenever the time came. One of the worst examples of the utilitarian use of women in country marriages came at the hands of George Simpson, the Governor-in-Chief of the Hudson's Bay Company. From 1821 to his death in 1860, he had 11 children with 7 women, only one of whom he actually recognized as his official wife. Typically, he simply gave care of his children to another person in the company when he was promoted or was transferred to another fort. So... It was far from unusual when Patrick Small left behind his wife, his daughter, Charlotte, her two siblings, Patrick and Nancy, and a half-sister, which he fathered with another woman, which was also being raised within the family. Charlotte went on to be raised by her mother and other Cree relatives and spoke Cree as her first language. She was also described as a girl who asked too many questions, but it was that curiosity that went on to serve her well later in life. And life was hard for the family and Charlotte was encouraged to find a European husband, just as her mother had over a decade previous. A European husband could ease the burden for the family, and Charlotte was the oldest daughter and was first in line to marry. So, an arrangement was reached, and Charlotte found herself a husband. Her country marriage arrangement, though, would go on to differ greatly from her mother's. did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Levine? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On June 10th, 1799, when Charlotte was just 13 years old, she agreed to marry David Thompson in a settlement called Setekawack, located in present-day northern Saskatchewan, about 370 kilometers north of present-day Saskatoon. Now, before we go any further, we must address the fact and not gloss over the issue that Charlotte was still a child when she married David Thompson, who was 29 at the time. And while such a union was common at the time, in the fur trade and throughout the world, it can be seen very differently in our modern sensibilities. As soon as she married in a simple ceremony charlotte packed up what little she had and journeyed away from home with her new husband thompson at this point was already a famous fur trader and surveyor born in scotland he began to work as a clerk with the hudson's bay company as a teenager after severely breaking his leg in a sledding accident he spent the next two years teaching himself mathematics surveying and astronomy while he recovered once his apprenticeship was finished He asked for his sextant and navigational equipment from the Hudson Bay Company, rather than the traditional HBC coat. The company gave him both the coat and the equipment. And while working as a fur trader for the company, he mapped out a route to Lake Athabasca along the current border of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Due to his skill as a mapmaker, he was promoted to surveyor in 1794, but his love for the Hudson's Bay Company was fading. He was eventually told to cease surveying and focus on the fur trade by his superiors, so he left the company to join the Northwest Company in 1797. The company supported his love of surveying and map making and allowed him to focus on that exclusively. The Northwest Company had been established less than two decades earlier in 1779, and gaining someone like Thompson was prestigious for the company. By 1798, Thompson had surveyed 6,750 kilometers from Grand Portage to Lake Winnipeg, as well as the headwaters of the Assiniboine and Mississippi Rivers, and both sides of Lake Superior. Then, he married a girl he had never met who was half his age. On the day of the wedding, Thompson recorded in his journal, Today Wed Charlotte Small. As soon as the wedding was over, the couple journeyed across the prairies and settled at Rocky Mountain House, where they remained for three years while Thompson surveyed the area. It quickly became apparent to Thompson that Charlotte was not simply a wife tagging along on the journeys through the wilderness. For one, she could speak English, French, and Cree. And her skill in dialects also allowed her to decipher the languages of other indigenous bands. Thompson would write, My lovely wife is of the blood of these people, speaking their language and well-educated in the English language, which gives me a great advantage. Her knowledge of Cree ceremonies and customs also gave Thompson a deeper understanding of his trading partners. He also learned from her that the Cree called themselves the Nahathaway, rather than the French-Canadian term of Cree, and from then on he used that term when writing in his journals. On June 10, 1801, two years to the day of their marriage, the couple welcomed their first child, Fanny, who was born in Rocky Mountain House. A child, though cared for, made things a little bit difficult for the couple. Today, we may romanticize the life of an explorer, a person who traveled through the untouched wilderness, seeing beautiful landscapes and having a life of total freedom. In truth, it was a hard and difficult life, especially when winter reared its ugly head over the landscape with a family in tow. During that harsh season, starvation was an ever-present concern. And for Thompson, Charlotte was invaluable when it came to surviving the winter. She was highly skilled as a hunter, always able to find food for the party during even the harshest winters. Thompson's records show that from November 1805 to February 1806, she snared eight rabbits for the party. Not much, but enough to keep everyone from starving. It's important to note, though, that at the time she was also caring for two children, Fanny and Samuel, and pregnant with a third, Emma. Not only did she keep everyone fed, but she also gathered and processed spruce roots for sewing and mending canoes and containers. She would also weave rabbit-skin blankets, made leather clothing, and gathered wild plants for food and medicine. In 1807, Thompson opened a trade route through the Rocky Mountains at Howes Pass, in what is present-day Banff National Park. This was done thanks to information Charlotte was able to obtain from the indigenous people of the area. Two years later, she was instrumental in her husband finding another route through the mountains to the north. As Thompson tried to find a river route through the mountains and only finding failure, Charlotte persuaded him to try the Athabasca River. On her suggestion, Thompson portaged from Rocky Mountain House to near present-day Hinton. He then ascended the Athabasca into the mountains and wintered near present-day Jasper. She then told her husband to go up the Whirlpool River. And once again, he listened and found the Athabasca Pass, which allowed him to go into present-day British Columbia through the mountains. The discovery of this pass allowed Jasper House to connect with the boat encampment on the Columbia River in modern-day British Columbia. And while it's not used for transportation now in favor of the nearby Yellowhead Pass, it was still an important link to the Pacific for fur traders. And today, it's a National Historic Site of Canada. On the west side of the pass, while crossing the Blaybury River, the entire group had to cross the river by clinging to their horses, so they would not be swept away. Charlotte made that same crossing, while carrying three children in her arms. In 1812, as Thompson's career was winding down, Thompson moved Charlotte and their five children to Montreal, where they were baptized on September 30th. On October 30th, 1812, the couple had their wedding formalized at the Scotch Presbyterian Church, making it official and no longer a country marriage. At the time, a marriage between a white man and indigenous woman was looked down upon, and Charlotte was unfortunately not accepted by Montreal society. In Montreal, the couple had eight more children together, four of whom sadly did not survive to adulthood. And upon his retirement from surveying, Thompson was given a generous pension from the Northwest Company, and for a time, the couple lived well. In 1815, the couple moved to Williamstown, Upper Canada, and Thompson earned extra money surveying the newly established border with the United States from Lake of the Woods to Quebec following the War of 1812. Thompson also began to complete his magnum opus, a detailed map of the Northwest Territory of the province of Canada. Once finished, it was so accurate it was used by the Canadian government for over 100 years. As the years went on, though, a series of poor investments began to drain the family's wealth. By 1831, Thompson was so deeply in debt, he had to return to work as a surveyor to provide for his family. Eventually, things became bad enough that he was forced upon his beloved surveying tools that had served him so well for decades, and by 1845, Charlotte and Thompson moved in with their daughter and son-in-law to save money. Then on February 10, 1857, Thompson died in Montreal in near obscurity. He was buried in an unmarked grave at Mount Royal Cemetery. Less than three months later, on May 4, 1857, Charlotte joined him in the afterlife. Her death was announced in the Montreal Gazette on May 6th with the simple statement, On the fourth instant, Charlotte Small, widow of the late D. Thompson, died. The couple were buried together in the cemetery. In 1928, Joseph Burr Terrell, the man who helped to bring the story of David Thompson back into the public consciousness, interviewed their grandson. He described Charlotte as active and wiry, with black eyes and copper-colored skin. He said she was gentle and kind, and an excellent housekeeper. Terrell wrote, Mrs. Thompson was a model housewife, scrupulously neat and devoted to Thompson as he was to her. Now that's the end of the Charlotte Small story, but there's one bit of recognition she finally received, over a century after her death, that you should know about. While Jarrell helped bring the story of David Thompson back to life, Charlotte remained a side character. Most news stories about Thompson gave one sentence to their marriage and often referred to her simply as a half-breed and ignored the integral role she played in Thompson's legacy. In fact, during my research, I found only one news article, among all the articles published about Thompson between 1900 and 1950, that gave Charlotte more than one sentence. The article, published in the Edmonton Bulletin on February 29, 1936, simply refers to her, though, as the Constant Companion. In the 1920s, David Thompson's unmarked grave finally received a memorial to honour him. As for Charlotte buried right next to him, nothing marked her grave until 1998, when a simple plaque was placed on her grave that read, Woman of the Paddle Song, in reference to the 1970s book by Elizabeth Clutton Brock that gave a fictionalised account of her life. On April 11, 2008, Charlotte was declared a National Historic Person by the Government of Canada, 81 years after her husband received the same honour. A plaque was placed in Jasper National Park to honour her, and it reads, She is representative of the many Aboriginal women who formed significant partnerships with fur traders during the 18th and 19th centuries, contributing to trade and exploration through language and survival skills, as well as cultural liaison. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's, Experience Mountain Parks, Wikipedia, Louis Real Institute, Library and Archives Canada, Montreal Gazette, Edmonton Bulletin, Barhead Leader, Vancouver Sun, Kingston Week Standard, and the Western Horse Review. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at Canada, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.